Hello and welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emily. And today we're joined by Dr. Courtney Traub, who's a teaching and research fellow at the Rothermere American Institute and also teaches at various colleges in Oxford. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk today about a weird and fascinating publication from the late 1960s, which is called the Whole Earth Catalog. And it's something that was first published in 1968 by a guy named Stuart Brand, who's a Californian biologist and entrepreneur who's become sort of this countercultural icon. And I guess what I want to talk about today is how this old publication from the 60s that in many ways has been forgotten, in many ways kind of helps lay the groundwork for how we think about both technology and ecological problems and issues today. And you could even say that in some ways it's a real precursor to our digital culture. So just to give a little background information on this publication, the first issue of the catalog um, came out the same year that the first NASA satellite image of the Earth was taken from space. And that image, of course, of the planet was splashed on the cover against this dramatic black backdrop of the Earth in deep space. The subtitle of the publication um, was Access to Tools, which is sort of inscribed in white lowercase letters um, along the bottom. So what was the catalog exactly and what were these tools it promised to hold within its pages? Well, in his opening manifesto, Brand defined it as a set of tools that would allow individual users, rather than mere readers, we should note, to seize control of their educations and their destinies and to sort of circumvent the centralized powers of government and of corporations um, to pursue what Brand called a new realm of intimate personal power. You kind of see it as a sort of hippie libertarianism, if you will. <laughs> Self-styled hippie libertarianism is what I would call it. So the really interesting thing about the catalog from the standpoint of being a, a print text is that readers actively contributed to its contents they submitted reviews and suggestions for interesting books or for new products um, that they had used and wanted to share with other readers. And um, the catalog collected these in a kind of eclectic compendium. And so in this sense, the catalog can be considered as a prototype for the public internet because the contents are partially generated through readers. It's sort of a crowdsourced and user-generated uh, project. Of course, the catalog is also named after that iconic image of the whole Earth in deep space, and the idea that our planet operates according to these universal natural principles of balance or homeostasis. Brand and his hippie cohort were espousing ideals of holistic ecology, and they were also advocating for the development, of course, of appropriate tools and technologies that might allow um, them to create a more harmonious society in Earth. So inherent in the catalog is really this idea of tech working in harmony with natural systems to lead to a better future. It was a very pro-technology sort of sort of publication. Uh, how often were these uh, publications put out? Um, it was roughly every year, but it was really um, irregular. There would be some years that they wouldn't come out at all, and of course in 1971, I believe, or 72, I'm not sure which, um, they announced the last Whole Earth Catalog in very dramatic fashion. This is our last issue. But, um, of course, that wasn't true. <laughs> there were many iterations that would follow over the years, and then there were a number of spin-off publications, Co-Evolution Quarterly, uh, several other publications that had the Whole Earth Catalog sort of attached mm -hmm. 
to them in a subtitle that whose full title escapes me. Um, but yeah, that wasn't to be the last. And why are people still, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting publication, but why are people still working on it and looking at it? I mean, I guess, you know, beyond just the real meaty philosophical stuff that you find in it, you know, a real dedication to things like cybernetics and systems theories, which I'll talk about a little later in, in depth in relation to kind of the, the tech side and the environmentalist side. But I guess the most obvious reason that I think it's fun to peruse the catalog is it's just so eclectic. It's filled with so many amusing blurbs and weird esoteric illustrations and suggestions for books to read and gear gear to buy and it kind of it's both sort of quaint from the from our current perspective as kind of this um you know compendium of 1960s and 1970s american counterculture it kind of seems sweetly naive in some ways it's sort of a mad hatter's tea party of psychedelic crazed hippies and avant-garde musicians and media theorists like philip glass and marshall McLuhan. Um, and then, of course, people like Buckminster Fuller, the engineer who's most famous for his geodesic domes and who's kind of the catalog's unofficial patron saint. So you have that whole 1960s, 1970s culture, but at the same time, it feels in some ways so so relevant to some of our most press pressing questions today. You know, it's trying, in its pages, you find lots of questions around how we can advance our technologies, but in a way that's sustainable. You find questions around issues like resource depletion and population growth and you know, climate change wasn't there at that time, but you know, the ravages of, of um, synthetic chemicals on your natural environment. So I think a lot of the things that we're grappling with right now, a lot of the things that were important to them, I think are once again um, feeling very important to us in the present. And so at the same time, it feels very contemporary. It's kind of interesting that there's this sort of hippie libertarianism, but at the same time, there's this very commercial aspect of the of the magazine. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's things that you can buy. If you if you look at the images that you sent us earlier that we'll put, be putting on the blog, have you know how how much things cost and how much where you can buy them, and it's kind of it's interesting that those things are things that might not be compatible in our imagination, but seem to have have worked nicely in tandem in the whole earth catalog yeah absolutely i mean it, it's true that when we think of you know the hippie counterculture of the 60s we tend to associate it with this ideal of you know drop out of society and reject you know reject all the kind of dominant orders and to some degree that's still operating here i mean brand's idea and that of his cohorts was really you know that we need an alternative space to create good tools and that, you know, the, the, the huge bureaucratic, you know, institutional powers, like, say, IBM, which was kind of seen as the big corporate behemoth that, you know, they wanted to create a, a, a counter to, that kind of idea is still very much present. But he's really kind of proposing a, a sort of consumerist utopia. Um, it's not really an anti-consumerist or anti-capitalist utopia by any means. In fact, the whole Earth catalog was was actually inspired by the L.L. Bean catalog, <laughs> which in its early days was not at all um, aimed at yuppies uh, as it is today. Um, it was aimed at more of sort of a, you know, Outdoorsy types. Right, yeah. yeah it is. So Brand saw the L.L. Bean catalog and he thought, oh, well, that'd be interesting to do something like that, but much weirder and more eclectic and infused with, you know, philosophy and poetry and, you know, book reviews and things of that nature. But yeah, you find so many weird and interesting um, 
products and suggestions and advice in the catalog, you know. So as I said earlier, um, everything from how to build geodesic domes and teepees and wind turbines to where to find gear for fishing and canoeing in national parks, organic farming, uh, masturbation techniques for women, <laughs> um, esoteric essays and poems that, you know, you know, make us chuckle today. Um, there's a particular poem in the 1968 issue that's called All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace. And it sort of describes this um, Edenic scenario of humans and machines melding in a perfect blissful sort of garden, a cybernetic garden. Um, and it sh and there's a funny illustration beside the poem um, with a naked hippie couple lounging casually outside a spaceship. So, <laughs> so it's this, it's a very sort of prototypical example of the mood of 1968 and that kind of cybernetic fantasy of humans creating kind of ever more perfect technology to live in harmony with the earth, you know, which is <laughs> staple in sci-fi as well, of course. It sounds like such a range of things that these days, if you wanted to find it, you'd just look on the internet. Um, can you say a bit more about how it almost seems like this is a little precursor to the internet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I, I know that it might seem strange um, to many to suggest that a print text can somehow kind of lay the blueprint for the web and for the kinds of models of um, interactivity and community that we've really come to take for granted in the digital age. but. Um, you know, it's immediately apparent, even from the very first pages of that first issue of the catalog, that the design of the early public internet really took some cues from um, this publication. So you open the first um, issue and you see the table of contents page, and it really looks a lot like one of those early internet topic directories, like Yahoo or Alta Vista. This was a long time ago, so some listeners may not remember this at all. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember it pretty well as well. So the, ca the, the table of contents page is organized into eclectic categories with titles like Understanding Whole Systems, Shelter and Land Use, Communications. And then below those main categories, you have what we'd call in web terminology sort of links, um, which you know obviously don't really link to feature pages, but um, the idea is kind of there. Um, and you know, there are no page numbers associated with those sort of subtitles. So instead of encouraging readers to just go immediately to what they want to see, the idea is that they peruse the catalog, they browse it in a much more sort of peripatetic, non-linear manner. One other point to make on or how it sort of stands as an important um, predecessor to the web is just to note that its importance has really been acknowledged in the tech world um, by numerous people, um, including Steve Jobs, you know, the late founder of Apple. So at a commencement speech um, at Stanford University in 2005, he actually compared the whole Earth catalog to Google and then he quoted a slogan that was found in the 1974 edition stay hungry, stay foolish. Um, it's interesting that people now associate that slogan with him and kind of, even though he made a very good faith effort to, <laughs> to quote it properly as being from the whole earth catalog, people now think, oh, Steve Jobs said that. So it's interesting that, and I don't think Stuart Brand has a problem with that because at heart he kind of proudly, you know, believes that that was what was supposed to happen. Um, it's kind of it's kind of nice that you you brought in the idea of innocence or naivety before, and there's it's sort of self so self consciously naive. 
in that it almost suggests that foolishness is a is a positive quality that is something to something to be desired and something that they are trying to sort of tap into and that it almost makes us more prepared for things yeah i mean i think in a way there's kind of a sense that you know when you have this systems theories approach to things there's a sense that randomness can lead to to genius and that you know things shouldn't always be organized or pursued in a in a, in a linear way and i think they're definitely there's a lot of sort of neo-romantic stuff going on in in the same way that apple has really espoused this kind of ideal of you know think differently you know um whether or not apple is still <laughs> is countercultural in the way that they claim to be i think we have serious we are recording about. this on a map mac after all <laughs> yes of course <laughs> the irony of that um but but yeah there's that there's that sense that again going against the grain of kind of you know square um cut from the cloth ibm you know rationality which um you know the analysis was was that would that's what had led to some of the great you know disasters of the 20th century that kind of rationality so being hungry and foolish and maybe not not going the the, the well-beaten path and rejecting that kind of linear rational thinking i think is something that stuart brand and and buckminster fuller and norbert wiener the founder of cybernetics and a lot of other people would say is kind of like a different a different way of approaching knowledge yeah so you talked about this poem that sort of uh, pairs together this cybernetic uh, and environmental uh, ideal in a way. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the environmental and ecological aspects of the Whole Earth Catalog. I mean, it's it's in the name, right? It's the ho the Whole Earth Catalog, and um, yeah, this idea of seeing a holistic, seeing the Earth in full. In Absolutely, yeah. I mean. In a sense, that the fusion between the interest in technology and in understanding, you know, our our ecology is kind of a whole system, really are inseparable because that first satellite image of Earth was a technology fueled, you know, way to grasp the physical Earth as a as a, you know, holistic entity. Um, and there are lots of scholars, um, like this woman Ursula Heisa has written a book in which she talks a lot about satellite technologies really being something that facilitated and, and mediated um, early environmentalism. So I think those two things inherently go hand in hand and have really grown up together. And that's another reason why in my own research I'm really interested in the Whole Earth Catalog, because um, I think so much of the time, you know, we think through problems of technology and ecology together it's not coincidental it's because those things were kind of formulated using the same sort of language and the same sort of philosophical um, questions um, but in terms of environment yeah the catalog i think is really an important precur precursor to many of our current um, perspectives on ecology and environmental problems i mean it may have started out as this kind of optimistic technophilic um, sort of document, you know, in 1968 with a rather hippie-ish or sentimental approach to ecology. So, you know, in the early years, the catalog was dominated by wilderness survival gear and um, instructions on making your own teepees in the desert. And um, again, esoteric illustrations with, you know, hippies and as we saw <laughs> earlier in um, cybernetic gardens. Um, so 
really uh, kind of a focus on harmony and, and homeostasis and good stewardship of the earth, but less of a like a pragmatic or genuinely sort of scientific approach to ecological problems. Then when you get into the 70s, um, a sort of darker version of the ecological message starts coming through. Um, and this is partially because um, in the very late 60s, you had had books like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, which had been published, which really was kind of an expose on the dangers of toxic chemicals in our water supplies, in, in soil. So the growing awareness of sort of the problems around toxicity. You had continued nuclear fears in the Cold War, which was growing more threatening. Um, and also um, these kind of Jeremiah books that were coming out on overpopulation and the dangers that it posed um, in terms of land resources, in terms of water supplies, um, things like that. So again, yeah, in the 70s, um, there was this growing sense, you know, we'd better act fast or kind of risk throwing the whole ecological balance off in a way that might be irreversible. Again, I keep talking about systems theories, and I know it's a little bit abstract, and even I struggle sometimes <laughs> to understand <laughs> systems theories, but I mean, the basic premise of, you know, e systems theories in very layman's terms is just the idea of um, the feedback loop, the idea that, you know, the earth is this very delicate ecosystem and we don't really know what kinds of consequences might follow by radically putting pressure um, on a certain aspect of the ecosystem um, and that the kind of feedback loop chain of events might happen to really put life, our life included, in, in to danger. So in the 1971 catalog, we see some really dramatic things, like several pages of the issue dedicated to recapping this, this event, which was called Life Raft Earth. Um, and this was basically a live game with people um, held in Hayward, California in the early 70s. And it was kind of a simulation of what might happen in the case of famine, um, water running out, other consequences of overpopulation. That sounds very intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in the 70s, there was lots of dedication to this kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. let's get together and think about what would happen if these unthinkable things mm -hmm. happen. And you almost, it makes me sort of wonder, why aren't we doing that now with things like climate change? I mean, you'd think it would actually be useful to have, you know, people getting together in big numbers and just sort of working out risk scenarios, you know? It seems almost as if we're in a more paralytic moment. Maybe we're too mm -hmm. foolish. Maybe it feels too potentially real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a very good point. It kind of creates that uh, that feeling of paralysis, I guess. But anyway, um, there are so many ways that you know the ecological problems that were kind of being hashed out in the catalog continue to to feel really important and and really compelling. And and yes, there is a lot of sort of esotericism sometimes, and you don't always get the sense that it's particularly scientific or particularly. Uh, always serious but um, a lot of interesting content in there. It kind of reminds me of that, um, was it Voyager 2? I think where they had that record where they put on sounds of the world and, and songs and things like that then they just sent it out into space. Oh yeah yeah. Um, it's a similar sort of capturing what it means to be human, but also a snapshot of a particular time and a particular, mm -hmm. you know, space word gaze and, yeah. and uh, you know, ideas of who we are in as humans on Earth, but also with, with this sort of sense that we are involved in something much broader as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it probably 
Stuart Brown would be very happy to have these things put into time capsules. I mean, they already <laughs> have been put in time capsules. Oh, and, uh, yeah, but they are time capsules in a way. They are. Kind of an archive of, of human paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> and hope. And hope. <laughs> There's a bright side too. <laughs> I think it's a very, opt- it's overall a very optimistic, um, I mean, Stuart Brand was anyway, not everybody, not all the books reviewed were optimistic, but he and Buckminster Fuller in particular were, you know, techno-utopians, you know, and continued, mm-hmm. well, he Brand continues to be, but he pursues things that some would say are, are fairly... <laughs> off the charts he's at the moment pursuing things like reviving extinct species trying to revive extinct species like um woolly mammoths i think i think woolly mammoths we learn nothing from jurassic park (laughs) (laughs) this is what i'm saying you don't want all of them to come (laughs) as far as i know there are no dinosaur systems theories right i mean we need to remember that there are repercussions to these these events did women engage with the catalog a lot like did they write in or contribute reviews because i was just thinking about the ecological side of it and I don't know the tools that you can buy they I mean they're often things some of those survivalist things sound mm-hmm. very much like they would appeal have appealed to men rather than women yeah that, I mean that's a very apt question it I think that this is a counterculture that is very male dom- dominated it's a very sort of white male northern Californian counterculture and and yeah, sure, while there were women who, who wrote in and, and, you know, women's books being reviewed, like like Rachel Carson and Barbara Ehrlich, who wrote um, on the question of population dangers, um, I think it, it definitely, you know, may have been a, a publication that catered. It, it didn't necessarily see itself as catering primarily to men, but I think in the end, um, that definitely was the case in the same way that you know, the merry pranksters and the beat, the beat poetry movements, uh, you know, that, that entire kind of countercultural, um, it was also very male dominated, although there were important female contributors to those as well. Movement. And I guess we also don't know who were the kind of people who were writing in and su- suggesting, um, products and books, right? I mean, there might've been women engaging with the process who are now anonymized. Sure. I mean, occasionally, um, so Stuart Brand had this tendency to um, preface most of the entries with little little notes, sort of okay. explaining what the origins of them are. So right. for a lot of the book reviews, you say, oh, so-and-so from, you know, um, Modesto, California, <laughs> sent in this book after reading it and saying, you know, he wanted to throw it against the wall, but it was still a good read. <laughs> so I guess in some cases we have indicators of who who sent in the suggestions, mm-hmm. but but not always, so... Oh, that could be that could be an interesting niche project. <laughs> who were the people who contributed? Mm-hmm. But overwhelmingly, I would say it was a fairly well-educated, you know, white uh, Californian, you know, people who had time and, <laughs> <laughs> and means maybe to to engage with it. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that the values of the whole Earth catalog have lived on in the tech industry that it? has sort of sprung from that worldview? I mean, to be a bit skeptical, I think I think that the tech industry would certainly like to think that it continues to carry forth some of the values of egalitarianism and, you know, um, individual innovation and um, also some of the ideals of social justice, etc. I mean, Apple kind of 
Apple really casts itself still as a responsible company, as an ethical company that cares about people and that, you know, is also cares about its consumers very much and contributes this kind of utopian ideal of connecting across space and time, which is, again, a very romantic idea that I think, you know, comes out of this idea of the catalog, people connecting and sharing ideas across space. And that's the ideal of the digital age as well. But you have to wonder whether, you know, a publicly traded company like Apple in a place like Silicon Valley, which has contributed to things like income inequality in San Francisco through massive gentrification, and also the IT industry, you know, is a huge polluter. Computers take up massive landfills, mostly in Asia, with cocktails of toxic chemicals kind of funneling out of the computer parts and, and um, carcasses. You just have to wonder, you know, does something go wrong along the way? <laughs> I mean, really, um, those have become the major institutions of our time. So I, I don't think really that the, the anti-institutional sort of make tools that are good for the planet uh, part has really been, has really, you know, played out in the way that the, the initiators of the catalog might have hoped. I do think on a less on a less, less cynical note, though, that as much as the catalog seems like this sort of quaint archive of hippie and avant-garde ideals that were never realized at the scale that was hoped for, I think it still does feel relevant from a contemporary standpoint. Um, you know, so many of the questions and problems and dreams for new sorts of balance between um, technology and um, and ecological sustainability continue to really preoccupy us. And it's really where we're at still, you know, how we can't just stop being technological as a, as a species, but we know that, you know, the jig is up if we don't figure out a way quick to make those tools um, less, um, less problematic um, to our, well, to the environment, sorry. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it is worth rereading the catalog more seriously, not just to learn more about, you know, how we got here um, in our kind of digital age and with our current environmental problems, but um, to sort of reconsider what sorts of questions and even potential solutions um, in those pages may, may maybe have been overlooked and deserve some reconsideration. Thank you so much, Courtney, um, for being on, on our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And if you'd like to know more about the Whole Earth Catalogue, we can put some images from it up on the blog, um, together with some links that you might find interesting. You can find all of that on our blog at uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. And thank you so much for joining us, Courtney. Thank you. It's been great.